Hi, our hosts today are Radhika Sutherland and Matt Doran, and with us we have Professor Henry Rose, Sarah Sewell, and Emma McMullen. Today we're going to be discussing the intersection of the legal needs of underserved communities, public interest law, and law school debt. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podcast. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Emma McMullen. I graduated from Loyola in 2018, and I'm currently an attorney at Legal Aid Chicago in the Children and Family Practice Group. I'm Sarah Sewell, and I'm currently a 3L here at Loyola. I'm Henry Rose. I'm a member of the faculty. I'm very happy to say that both Emma and Sarah were students of mine. I'm happy to see them and happy to talk to them today. So a quick bit of background information. Uh, Access to affordable legal services for the public is critical in a society based on the rule of law. The resolution of legal matters is growing more expensive, time-consuming, and complex. Many who need legal advice cannot afford to hire a lawyer and are forced to represent themselves. Even those who can afford legal services often do not use them or turn to less expensive law-related alternatives. For those whose legal problems require entry into the court system, various challenges arise due to serious underfunding of the courts. The unfortunate reality is 80% of low- and middle-income people cannot afford representation. That is from a ABA Commission on the Future of Legal Services. Now, at the same time, law school graduates enter the legal workforce with more debt each year. The average law school debt is $113,000, yet the average salary upon graduation is $72,500. That is an unhealthy and unsustainable debt ratio. No bank would lend to that person, which means such individuals cannot purchase a home loan. It's no secret public service jobs pay less than firm work. With such staggering debt loads, how can law school graduates represent underserved communities while also building a life for themselves? How can law school grads take responsibility for their debt while working in public service law jobs and fulfilling an urgently needed role? So I've noticed that many of my classmates came to law school with similar ideals based on what was happening in our country. Uh, For example, right now, immigration law is a really popular answer if you ask people what kind of law they want to go into. So I want to start with Professor Rose. Was this the case when you began law school? Can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to enter into the field and what was happening in that time? Well, uh, I grew up politically in the 1960s, which was the time of uh, great uh, civil rights efforts and enactment of uh, our major civil ri- federal civil rights laws and the launch of the war on poverty by President Johnson. Uh, the Vietnam War was going on and it was uh, increasingly an unpopular war. So it was a time of high political interest and political controversy, and uh, I was not immune from having my own views and my own opinions, and I was kind of oriented always to the underdog, uh, trying to help those who, um, against whom the deck was stacked. So going to law school, uh, I perceived as a, you know, being a lawyer was a way to kind of change the way the deck was stacked. And I feel like in my career, I've been mildly successful at uh, accomplishing that. Do you girls feel similarly? Because I know Radhika and I experienced this coming in as 1Ls, that there was a significant increase in law school applications and students coming to law school in the wake of the 2016 election. Has that been something that you guys experienced? I don't know necessarily if that was you know happening for you, uh, particularly Emma, when you were in school, but have you experienced this resurgence? Uh, and as well as what, you know, what brought you guys to law school as well? So I was a second year student when the election happened. I oh, okay. think that there was a lot of discussion around how we thought things were going to turn out, how they did turn out. And I think that after that happened, there was a high energy in the law school among students who were already here in terms of maybe taking on more volunteer type programs, but because a lot of the students in my year had already kind of decided what their path was going to be, there was a little bit less room for movement towards the legal services field. And in that realm as well, they also knew that there would be funding being cut because of the change in the political administration. So I think once they were already here and they already had some 
some of these loans that you talked about and some of the classes under their belt, there was a little bit less movement towards the public interest field if that wasn't already where they were headed. Yeah, and for me, I came to law school in 2017, so that was the year after the election. I had decided to apply to law school before the election happened, so that wasn't really a consideration, although I do think it made me feel more confident in my choice, um, that I wanted to be a lawyer and be doing public service work because, like Emma said, the funding um, it looked like funding was going to be cut, and you know I think those services were going to be more necessary than ever. But I kind of just came to law school because I was working in schools, and I wanted to do school law and discipline reform, and that's changed a little bit. But, but I do think that now when you ask incoming students what inspired them to go to law school, I feel like that's a really common answer is like a specific political need that has come up more so in the past two years than the previous eight, and that is why people are coming to law school. Professor Rose, do you see any history repeating itself in a way? Any similarities from what you experienced when you were strongly considering and then did pursue uh, the legal profession based on what you just pre uh, recent previously discussed of the movement in the 1960s and any history repeating itself for that today? Well, this is, uh, I just started teaching for the 38th year here at Loyola, and I have to say, really, um, for the entire 38 years, I've perceived that the student body here has always been sort of public interest oriented, uh, many students interested in pursuing full-time public interest careers. So at Loyola, you know, we're, we're a Jesuit institution, and that uh, attracts students who have those uh, aspirations as well. Um, so I, I can't say I've seen a dramatic change among Loyola students. But uh, I'm sure you're all aware that um, for about a decade, uh, applications to law schools across the country were declining significantly. And we're now uh, experiencing what I think is referred to as the Trump effect, which is a rising number of uh, people are applying to law schools. And I think uh, it's because a lot of people ha have become uh, motivated by uh, what's going on in Washington, particularly in the Trump administration, uh, to perceive, and they perceive that being a lawyer is a way to address that, to address the problems that are being uh, created by uh, this administration. Yeah, I think people call that the Trump bump to be cute. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm often accused of being culturally I missed some cultural cues. So we have the Trump bump, okay, I'll accept that. So one comment that I've heard a lot in my life is that I shouldn't be wasting this much time or money to pursue a JD if I'm only going to go into public interest. Was that an issue when you entered public interest law? Was that something that people bothered you about, and how did you respond to it? Well, uh, the only person who was bothered by my career choice was my mother, who was a wonderful woman. But she did, uh, in the early years of my career, uh, consistently ask me when I was going to become a real lawyer. <laughs> I, I, at that time, I was a legal aid lawyer, much as uh, Emma is right now. Um, and I would remind her, no, this is what I wanted to be doing, and I was very happy doing it. Um, and I have to say, I mean, uh, I'm always upset when I hear, uh, like, lawyers practicing lawyers who say, I would never urge my child to attend law school um, because I do not share that sentiment. You know, I've been a lawyer for 45 years now and I feel like being a lawyer has given me tools to help people in need, uh, to address social and political issues to some extent, to the extent that courts and the legal process allows, that to, allows us to do that. So I encourage people who, who want to change things see inequities in the world and in the country, I encourage them to go to law school because I think the law gives opportunities to address this. One organization I will give tremendous kudos to in the last two years is the ACLU. They have done a tremendous job of responding to many Trump administration initiatives, you know, changing the laws in various ways. They are in court the next day after a regulation goes into effect, and they've been incredibly, especially in the immigration area, and they have been incredibly effective at blunting many of the illegal initiatives of the Trump administration. So being a lawyer in this era, to me, makes a lot of sense if you're politically, you know, if you're upset about what's happening politically. Emma, is this something that 
people have said to you now that you are a couple years out of law school and you actually went into the field? Is that something people in your life say to you? Yes, I think that it started when I was in undergrad and pursuing a child law career, which is something I was lucky to find an interest in prior to coming to law school. Whenever I would explain my career path to people, the biggest response I would get is, wow, that sounds so sad. Yes, it is. You're right. But somebody needs to be doing that work because if everybody's response is that's so sad, then the work isn't going to get done. And I think that that applies to my field, but it also applies to legal services generally. I'm really glad to see that resurgence in the motivation to make change. I don't think that that was as present when I started looking at law schools back in 2014-ish. But I do think that it is still something I hear from family members, from friends, just kind of that expectation that you went to law school, therefore you must be making a lot of money. And maybe you're working very hard, but you're making a lot of money. And that's definitely not the case in legal services right now. I don't regret my choice, and I'm very happy to be where I am. I do feel like a real lawyer, and I don't feel like people are maybe thinking about it in the same way. I think there is respect for the profession, but I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding about what it involves. And I do think that there is some ideas within the legal profession as well that people who work in legal services are not providing the same maybe level of advocacy, partly because they don't collect funds from their clients. Many agencies don't collect funds from their clients. So there's sort of a different um, a different dynamic with the clients as there would be for a paying client. And Sarah, as a 3L who's about to enter into the field, same question. Is that something that people bring up to you? Is it something you think about? Yeah, so I guess I'm pretty lucky in that my I'm going to be the first lawyer in my family, so no one has really ever made any comments about me not being a real lawyer or questioning why I'm getting a law degree. It's just like a really exciting thing, I think. And so I've been lucky to have support in that, and that my parents have always encouraged us to do what we wanted to do as long as it made us happy. Um, I do get it surprisingly from other law students, I think the most, you know, this idea of like, oh, well, you're going to be in debt forever. Public service loan forgiveness isn't working out for anyone, so it's not going to work out for you. You know, this idea of like, well, we're we're making money, so we're doing better work kind of um, attitude, I guess. To me, it's really funny because when I first started learning about what different lawyers did, I felt like the attorneys that I got to observe or talk to who were doing public interest type careers were doing the work that I always pictured lawyers doing. So like being in court and handling a bunch of cases in one day and talking to clients and, you know, getting on the train with their files. And and so to me, it's like I, I do feel like a real lawyer. Like I feel like a real lawyer when I get to go to my internship and stand up in court and interview a client and, you know, get to close a case. Like those are real lawyer things to me. So it, it is hard to, like, resist, I think, that negative attitude from other people, particularly other law students, because it's like, oh, aren't we all in this together? But it was why I came to law school, so it never has really deterred me. I think public interest lawyers are given a lot more responsibility more quickly. I remember when I became a legal aid lawyer, I was sworn in to the bar, and a week later, I began, began my career as a legal aid lawyer, and I was assigned a federal class action, a state court appeal, and it was my case. And, uh, and I'm sure Emma has had similar experiences. I know she's only been out of law school one year, but I bet she has a lot of responsibility in her cases. I hear about our former graduates who are in big law, you know, some of whom don't go to court, uh, they're in file rooms going through documents and reading depositions and don't have a lot of responsibility. Now maybe, maybe we had too much responsibility, maybe we weren't <laughs> quite ready for it, but um, it, it, it's reflective of the need that if you're a legal a public interest lawyer, you're often thrown right into the battle. You know, I felt like I was able to manage, I'm sure Emma and I know Sarah will be able to manage as well. So. Uh, you know, you have a lot more responsibility and you're up and running quickly in a public interest uh, job. The Legal Services Corporation defines the justice gap as the difference between the civil legal needs of low-income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs. In your experience, Professor Rose, how 
has that gap evolved from the time when you were first practicing to what Emma, you, you, you know, you suspect at least that Emma is practicing today? Well, the gap has actually widened. Um, the Legal Services Corporation did studies in the 80s uh, when I was there, and the justice gap was uh, described as a low-income people could only get legal assistance in 25% of the situations in which they needed it. And the most recent study, which was done, I think, two years ago, um, said the, the low-income people can only obtain the legal assistance they need in a civil case in 14% of the situations in which they need it. You know, I, I think there's a tremendous number of Americans who face economic hardship, not just low-income people, a lot of middle-income people have, and they have legal problems and they have a very difficult time accessing the help of lawyers when they need it. So I, I think it's a problem that's only growing. Have you experienced problems, let's say, that didn't exist when you were first practicing that have started to come to the fore a little bit more, or have, has any abated over time because Thankfully, those problems have been addressed and, and new ones have either supplanted them? Well, the one uh, has already been mentioned. Immigration law has really exploded in terms of the legal needs. I mean, I have students in my classes whose families, you know, the students come to me and explain situations uh, where their families are in dire need of legal services involving litigation matters, or excuse me, representation in an immigration matter. Um, so that is certainly one area. Uh, housing, uh, which is the area that I specialized in as a legal aid lawyer, is still <laughs> a very serious area, child law as well. So, you know, I, I wish I could identify a particular area where, of law where the needs of low-income people have receded, but I, I really can't, especially uh, the Trump administration. If the Trump administration had its way, uh, the organization that funds Emma's practice would be defunded. and. There's all, and they want to cut back on food stamps, for example. They want to uh, make it more difficult to bring discrimination cases. Under the Trump administration, the needs of this population are, are increasing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's more and more legal issues to address. So Emma, a surprising number of people facing legal challenges don't address them, either because they decide to deal with the problem on their own, they don't know where to look for help, or they don't even know what their problem is, that it's a legal problem. How can the legal community better advertise its services so people know where to go for help? So I think something that my agency, Legal Aid Chicago, has been trying to find ways that are effective to communicate, it's changing in the changing world. In the past, people would be more likely to go to a community meeting or go to a community center. And it's not to say that communities have dwindled, but I think people are accessing them differently. So what used to be a presentation for 20, 30 people is now something that might be like a Facebook blast. And it's really difficult for agencies to keep up with that, especially legal agencies where you have to be very careful about the messaging that you're putting out in terms of what services you can provide. I think that in terms of that shifting dynamic of people not knowing there is a problem, is something that we see a lot, or maybe thinking that there's not a way to address that problem is something that we see a lot. Not necessarily so much in family law, because typically if you're involved in a dissolution of marriage or if you have a child law issue, it's really brought to your attention whether or not you want it to be. Um, but I think a lot of the other areas that Legal Aid Chicago provides services for, like housing, like consumer practice where there's maybe a car that's being repoed, and even employment issues where they might not know that they have a claim are things that people will choose not to address because services are so expensive. And even though there are free resources or low-cost resources, part of the issue is there aren't enough of them because of the funding being cut in large part. And so communicating to people that they have options is only helpful if the options can serve their needs. For the funding that, that is being reduced, how can people who want to see those services the funding for those services increased and both the uh, offerings of services broadened, how can they effectively lobby to have that done? You know, does it necessarily just have to stem from the altruism of the person who's in office or can it be done in such a way where the people who are you know, at this table can go out to their respective communities and say, here's what I want to have happen? Well, uh, in terms of the Legal Services Corporation, which funds uh, Emma's, uh, the work that Emma does, it would not exist if it were not for the American Bar Association. 
the Reagan administration wanted to defund the Legal Services Corporation. Uh, the Bo the Bo George W. Bush II wanted to defund the Legal Services Corporation. The, um, now the Trump administration would, like to, would see, want to see it defunded. So eliminate Emma's job, basically, and all the other attorneys who work with her. And so the American Bar Association has been a stalwart in, in, re in resisting uh, the Republican efforts to defund this organization. Um, however, the funding for the Legal Services Corporation is basically the same amount of dollars as it was 30 years ago, even though inflation has been like over 300% in that same period, yeah. you know, cumulatively. So the dollars that the Congress provides each year are just a fraction, you know, have the purchasing power of the fraction what they were 30 years ago. So, you know, political efforts um, in both New York State and in San Francisco, those cities have uh, appropriated city money to provide lawyers to represent people in eviction court. Uh, Sarah was in my law and poverty class and I always send my law and poverty students to eviction court at the Daily Center downtown. It's shocking what they see because they see 60% of the landlords are represented by attorneys. Less than 5% of the tenants are represented by attorneys and these poor tenants don't understand the process, they don't really know what's going on, and they, it's just like an assembly line process of moving tenants out of court. And um, so Chicago could do, I know Chicago's facing huge budgetary problems now, but uh, Chicago could fund, as New York and San Francisco do, more lawyers for tenants in eviction court. Um, so it's a matter of political will. Um, the bar associations, I think, have been very strong in support. but. You know, all lawyers are supposed to do pro bono work, you know, volunteer work on behalf of people who uh, can't afford, uh, have a legal problem but can't afford to pay an attorney. A minority of lawyers do pro bono work in Illinois and across the country. So lawyers, practicing lawyers could step up as well. My agency also receives grant funding, which is something that if you do see a legal need and you feel like it could be filled by one person or maybe two people, that's not really a huge amount of money. To, I mean, obviously not for you personally or one person personally, but in order to lobby and kind of get that niche filled is another way to go about it. If you can think of a project to create also for law students, the Equal Justice Works Fellowship, I believe is what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, the Equal Justice Works Fellowship is a way for students individually, if they see a need, they can fill that themselves with a project and be sponsored and you know receive a salary, but still have that work being done. Uh, so I'd like to start with Sarah on this, um, but I want to hear everyone's opinion. Pro bono is one thing. That's almost a luxury for a lawyer to be able to do pro bono work. What if there was some type of re requirement? So everyone in America who graduated with a legal degree, we all have to get our CLEs. What if everyone who graduated with a JD was also required to do a certain amount of public service work as well? Countries like Germany and uh, other countries in Europe have something similar to this where um, high school graduates cannot go to college without two years of service, whether it's military service or public service. Nothing like that exists in America, but what if we started it within our field, where if you graduate with a degree in order to maintain your licensure, you're required to serve the public in some way. It's an interesting idea. I do think there's an issue, and this to me is kind of an issue with pro bono work too, of um, you know, kind of sustainability. So if you have an attorney doing two years of work and then having that turnover to a different attorney, what does that look like for that caseload or what does that look like for the organization and what kind of resources have to be utilized to train that attorney in that particular type of work? Um, also considering that some of the attorneys who might be doing that would be, you know, coming out of law school with primarily like a business focus or tax or health law or, you know, something that might not be related. I mean, I think that maybe the middle ground is just really enforcing, you know, I mean, it is difficult, but like you said, pro bono work can be a luxury for a lot of attorneys also considering the billable hours requirement that most of them face if you're working at a law firm. But, you know, trying to enforce somehow a middle ground of 
having to do that pro bono work. Um, and I don't know what that would look like. I am so, I mean, I, I don't know what working for a firm looks like or what requirements there are. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I think really, like, to me, the ideal is just making public service work more feasible because I don't I can't even tell you how many friends I have who are like oh I would totally go into public interest if I could afford it I have a family member I need to take care of I have debts I need to take care of I have I was poor my whole life and I don't want to be poor anymore and you know these people would go into public service and they would make brilliant public interest attorneys they would change the face of housing law they would fix you know, the issues with DCFS, um, but they are working for big firms because they feel like they have to. So I really think the primary focus should be on making it easier for law students to go into public service if that's their true passion, making that something that can be a fulfilling career, not something that you have to stress about as much. I think to piggyback on that too, um, I agree that if it's a career that somebody would love to pursue, by all means, I wish it were easier for them to get into it. That being said, I don't think that public service work is the reason that everyone went to law school. And I think that people who are public service minded sometimes forget that. Some people went to law school because they want to work in-house or they want to work in finance or they want to work in real estate. And just like I wanted to pursue public interest, I think it's difficult to impose a requirement on them not because it's not needed, but because if that's not their passion, are they going to be doing good work? I don't have a doubt that they can, but if they're anxious to get back into whatever their passion field is, are they really going to put what they should be putting into these cases? Just because you can't afford legal services doesn't mean that you don't have every right to have a good attorney. And, and I know that's not what you were saying, but I do worry a little bit that if their focus is divided between something they really want to be doing and something they could care less about, are the clients going to be getting the right advocate? Are they going to be getting an advocate who really cares about them? And I think that's why it's important to have, you know, an, a public service industry where there are people who are dedicated to this and providing that level of care. There have been serious proposals by some state bar associations. They've seriously considered whether pro bono should be mandatory, but no state uh, has adopted it. Um, the argument for mandatory pro bono to me is pretty compelling and the basic argument is this, we have three branches of government, one of which is the judicial branch of government. For our citizens to meaningfully participate in that judicial branch to be able to bring a case, they need legal representation to do it effectively. Unless they can access lawyers to get into court when they need to, uh, our democracy suffers. They don't have access to this third branch of government. And to me, that's a very strong argument that lawyers perform kind of a public role. It's not just like a private job. We, have, we help people access public systems. Um, but the majority of attorneys have opposed mandatory pro bono, um, and that's why no uh, bar association has adopted it. What do you see that has the greatest unmet um, need? Is it litigation? Is it contract drafting? Is it incorporating a small business, drafting wills, what do you see as the area where if we could, you know, public interest lawyers could really make a dent if both more attorneys and resources were put towards that area? Well, the uh, report that the Legal Services Corporation did two years ago reported that family law was the area where people had the most, people who were involved in divorces or child custody matters or juvenile court proceedings had the most difficult time accessing lawyers. And, and the gap was widest for uh, low-income people who had a family law matter. I think consumer uh, matters, there's a serious deficiency. I, think, I don't think many uh, consumers are even aware of credit card problems, issues they have, and they don't even really know they have a problem often. So that's, that doesn't surprise me that that's an area where they are underserved in housing is also an area that they're underserved. So that report, which was really thoroughly done, uh, tells us that those are the, in the civil area, uh, those are the three primary areas of need. So I work in family law and education law, uh, but I've also done a brief stint in consumer, and I think that, to speak to your point, Professor Rose, I think that 
the one thing about family law is while you may not have access to an attorney, you do have access to the courtroom. The judge will listen to you. The judge understands that you don't have a lawyer. That doesn't always mean they're right. going to treat you the right way in those conditions, but you do at least get your day in court. And I think one thing that I noticed, again, in my very brief time in consumer law was just this idea of so many people not understanding that they have a legal issue, whether they don't know about this unjust credit card debt that's been building or they don't know that they signed a bad contract. Um, I think that there are a lot of legal problems that are able to be perpetrated because there's a class of people with knowledge who is taking advantage of a class of people without that knowledge. Um, so while I think all of these areas definitely are underserved, I think that that's an issue that I think is not only a gap in services that are being provided and that aren't, but also a gap that's really being created by a knowledge deficit. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that too. You know, I think the idea of consumer issues and also Matt I think you mentioned like incorporating a small business so business issues um, I don't know that that necessarily comes to people's minds when we think of public interest law I think most people go to housing child law family law um, immigration um, but to me that's something that I would imagine, and to Emma's point, it's also a knowledge issue. I would not know the first place to start with a consumer issue. I don't even know what consumer issues are out there. I am probably, you know, just as much of a victim of some sort of, you know, <laughs> consumer infringement of my rights um, as anyone else and without even knowing. So it is a really specific area of knowledge. Um, and that being said, I don't know if this question was limited to civil um, civil issues, no? No. Um, I do think that there is, not necessarily in Illinois, I'm not sure the statistics, but I know other parts of the United States, um, access to public defenders, so not necessarily accessing one, because in most cases, if you're in you know, criminal court, you have a right to a public defender. Um, but having a public defender who can provide um, effective assistance of counsel. I know that, especially in Louisiana, where I'm from, there uh, there are huge issues with funding public defender offices. There wasn't an office for public defenders in New Orleans until I think like 2007. Um, and so, you know, when there is a public defender with 300 plus cases, which is way more than what is recommended for effective assistance of counsel. Um, it becomes a huge issue. So not even access to a lawyer, but access to a lawyer who is able to put in the time and work to give you the best representation possible. Um, for all three of you, what innovations, policies, programs have yielded the greatest increase in accessing representation that you've noticed, if any? Well, <laughs> um, I mentioned I send uh, my students to eviction court uh, and that's the area in which I kind of cut my teeth in practice uh, was representing tenants, representing people facing foreclosure. And I'm smiling because um, it's actually a sad smile because eviction court hasn't changed much in the 45 years I've been a practitioner. It's the same kind of assembly line process of, of people um, be, you know, um, being sort of ground through and, and being evicted from their apartments. Now most of the people uh, most of the tenants fell behind their rent because they faced some sort of economic hardship and they can be lawfully evicted. But uh, my opinion is about 15% of them probably have some kind of defense that they could raise to defeat the eviction action. But if they don't have legal representation, they're not able to raise that defense uh, on their own. Uh, the courts at the, Daily, at the Daily Center where the main eviction courts are in Chicago, they, they developed a videotape for all tenants to observe before the court began in order to just inform them of who the players were and what the process was about. And I've noticed the last couple of years I've been uh, going with my students to eviction court, they don't even show that videotape anymore. I mean, they should, they should do it just to inform people of what's going on, but it, um, the courts tolerate uh, the, the inequities the kind of the structural inequities that are in the system. There used to be court reporters in eviction court to facilitate appeals. There no longer are court reporters in eviction court. So, um, you know, I think the courts need to take more responsibility for 
making sure that people are fairly treated. And most judges, you know, I think try to do that, but not all of them. And um, so I think the court system could be more user-friendly than it is yeah. for those people who are not represented. Yeah, I actually, when you asked this question, the first thing I thought about was eviction court because I remember when I went, there was a table. I don't even think anyone was sitting at it, but it was just a table right by the courtrooms with all these like pamphlets from different legal aid organizations and, you know, tenants' rights and a summary of the landlord tenant ordinance. And I just remember thinking, like, if I were going through this right now as a tenant, I, I don't know what I would do. It's, you know, you kind of are handed these papers and you go in and I really, I mean, anyone who's listening to this who is interested in any type of law, not even public interest, you should go and observe eviction court because it is horrifying. It is like, I really can't even explain what it's like. It is just, it's loud, it's fast. I think Professor Rose, you told us in class last, or two years ago now, um, that the average eviction hearing in Chicago lasts around seconds. Yeah, less than two minutes. In a lot of ways, it's great that there are all these organizations putting out work to try and, you know, make it more accessible. I know there's a Carpels desk in the Daily Center. Um, you know, CGLA does work with, um, you know, Station House representation um, and volunteer representation, and those things I think really are helping but at the same time I think it always just comes back to funding and getting people in there and getting someone to be with that person even if they're not representing them but just to explain what's happening even a video just to let you know what's about to happen and I have a pretty limited scope I haven't practiced in too many different areas or too many different courts Um, but I do think that something that I found at least interesting in family laws required mediation. Um, I think that that's something that can be really helpful when you have civil disputes where there is a possible resolution or a place to meet in the middle. I think that that could be utilized more, especially when there are no attorneys involved in family law. We talked about how it's a very underserved area. And I think that while it's not the same as having lawyers, at least there's some neutral third party who's kind of guiding the way. Sarah mentioned uh, CARPLES. I don't know I don't know what that's an acronym for, but it's a tremendous innovation that's occurred probably in the last 10 or 15 years. It's a place where anyone who has a legal problem can call and get advice and get uh, directed to an appropriate resource. It's sort of like this clearinghouse for people who have legal problems, and it's a tremendous innovation. One other really incredible innovation that's occurred is what's called Illinois Legal Aid Online, Mm -hmm. which is a tremendous resource of information for the public and for lawyers about the the legal uh, doctrine that affects and the legal procedures that affect low-income people. It was actually created by one of our alums, Lisa Koppels, who graduated about 15 years ago and was the first director. And the Illinois Legal Aid Online was given an award about two years ago as the best digital legal resource in the country for low-income people. Lisa has since left there, but uh, it's still in good hands. Um, So, you know, there there have been innovations that have been helpful. But the gap, you know, when people need a lawyer to represent them in a court or in an administrative agency, the gap is widening. I think one more agency just to throw in there is the Justice Entrepreneurship Project, which allows for I believe recent graduates, but it might be anybody to in um, to start a firm by doing partially pro bono. So you work with a nonprofit in order to get the knowledge base and have a supervisor while you work to start up your firm, but you do sliding scale cases. And so it's for people who might not qualify for a completely free service, but also can't afford a full price lawyer. And that I think is sponsored by the Chicago Bar Foundation. Hmm. By the way, another thing about the Chicago Bar, Fo- Chicago Bar Foundation, which is part of the Chicago Bar Association, is a terrific group. And they have put together a uh, manual of all of the providers of civil legal services in the Chicago metropolitan area and explain where they're located, what types of cases they do, what their eligibility guidelines are. And it's a tremendous, re- I often refer law students who are, if asked, they come to me and they say, what, 
what should I do this summer, you know, and I say, well, get the Chicago Bar Foundation book, and it describes, if you're saying in the Chicago area, it describes all of the resources that are available in the Chicago area for serving low-income people in civil it, cases. Is that manual available online it's for available the online. community? Yes, anyone, okay. if you go on, the, go to the Chicago Bar Foundation, um, it's online. Okay, great. So I'm, I'm glad you, you raised the possibility of other people besides um, lawyers getting involved in the process. So that was my next question, which is essentially, can access to legal services be improved if the pool of available providers is expanded to include such individuals. So a 2016 uh, Georgetown International Law Review article cited a British attorney who said, the future of the law and lawyers cannot be built on the involvement of lawyers in activities that do not need the input of someone who is legally qualified or where there are others or processes better suited to the task. There is an insidious consequence of believing that lawyers are the best or only resource for all tasks. It downplays and demeans non-lawyer input whether that is another person, technology, or process. And it is not surprising that inefficiencies persist and potential remains unrealized. So do you three believe that underserved communities can gain, can gain greater access to representation if people without a full law school education and law license are authorized to deliver legal services? Well, I'll take that on. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's terrific if to provide more information to people about the law and how it applies to them. And I think uh, non-lawyers can accomplish that. Uh, but my experience in the courts and in, in the administrative agencies is most low-income people, if they have a legal problem, it's a complicated one involving nuance and needs the services of a, a licensed lawyer who, who knows the law and can represent them in the particular proceeding they're involved in. So. I know there's a lot of people who believe that non-lawyer resources can help fill the gap. Uh, I have to admit I'm somewhat skeptical. When, when it really comes down to winning your eviction case, whether you can do that without the assistance of a lawyer. I was just going to say I think maybe something that is kind of a stepping stone to that. Um, although it's still, you know, legal involvement is the use of law students and, you know, in Illinois law students with their 7-Eleven license. I know that I have talked to attorneys um, who are either working for private firms or for government agencies and offices who really don't like that um, law students are allowed to step up on cases. But I personally think that it does lighten the load of practicing attorneys. Obviously, there is a supervision issue, so like there do need to be attorneys there supervising the law student. But I think that um, if it's just a matter of having people being able to stand up on cases and making phone calls in between hearings and making sure discovery is taken care of, you know, those are things that law students are able to do. And um, I think more and more we're able to see these organizations like Pilly providing internships for law students. Um, I work with the Public Guardian's office and they've given me a lot of responsibility and being able to stand up on cases with the supervision of an attorney and I do think that has maybe lightened the load of some of the attorneys um, who are working you know in that courtroom. I think it depends what stage of the problem the person is getting involved in. I think that if it is still at a stage where mediation may breach a resolution, that's great. But like Professor Rose said, a lot of these issues, the people aren't aware that they're involved in a legal matter until it's too late to resolve it outside of court. And I think at that stage, like you mentioned, frequently the other side has a lawyer, the other side has built a case, the other side has discovery, the other side is ready to go, and these people are coming in too late to solve their problems without a lawyer. I think that a lot of these situations may be able to have an amicable resolution, but not at the stage where the person is already looking for a lawyer. By that point, it's too late. Uh, yeah, I want to follow up to what Sarah said. Uh, my first 17 years here at the law school where I was the director of the first law clinic that we opened, and it was like a civil legal practice for low-income people. We represented people in evictions, uh, divorce cases, unemployment insurance cases, uh, social security cases. 
And my experience was if law students, our Loyola law students, were properly supervised, they could do a really competent job and, and really assist people achieve their legal goals. And so uh, if, if, if it's mainly Loyola law students who are listening to this <laughs> podcast, I urge you to consider, we have very fine clinics here at Loyola, terrific clinical supervisors, and uh, it's a place that you can learn a lot about practicing law and also help meet, help reduce the justice gap. Mm -hmm. So I think law students have a really important role to play and can do it well. So as I'm sure we've all experienced, it's impossible to force people to care about others. You know, we can scream it into the abyss. You must care about the people around you. You can't force people to do that. Without huge salaries to incentivize this kind of work, what motivation do people have to enter into public interest? What are the biggest benefits? And what steps can be taken to recruit more aspiring attorney attorneys to practice public interest law? I think speaking from a recent graduate perspective, I don't think that there's too much of a deficit in the sense that there aren't enough of people applying for these jobs. I think that there are um, you know, a, a hardy number of applicants it's just a lack of funding, and I think that maybe what we need to seek is not the motivation in the individual to practice the law, but maybe some more help from the outsiders or the people who have decided rightfully so that this isn't their career path to provide whether financial or pro bono-based support back into the industry is maybe more what we need to be looking for. I agree that it's very frustrating when, especially when it is your career and it is something that you're so passionate about that other people don't get it, um, but I do think that the number of applicants to these positions is very high and that's kind of the problem for students. Yeah, I mean, I think I do agree with Emma that it is, I think at least for a lot of organizations, not really an issue of getting applicants, but of getting funding. But, um, you know, I feel like there are probably certain organizations that are not getting as many applicants um, or getting applicants who maybe they're doing this as their second choice. Um, but to me, something that has been a huge benefit of being in public interest, and I think maybe Professor Rose mentioned this earlier, is you get a lot of ownership over the cases that you work on. You're given a lot of responsibility, and you're able to really develop the case in the way that you want to take it. Um, you know, I feel like I'm not really sure what direction to go in terms of encouraging funding. Um, I don't know where that funding should come from, um, but I do think that with more funding and creating more jobs, um, the people are there. You know, I think the people who want to do it are ready to do it. Um, you know, I came into this knowing I was not going to make a lot of money, and I was choosing between this and being a teacher, so it was kind of like either way, <laughs> like, here we go. But yeah, I mean, I think really like the bigger question is how do we incentivize the people who provide the money for this kind of work to happen? Personally, uh, I mentioned I've been a lawyer for 45 years and I have only represented low-income people in civil cases. And I've gotten a lot of, I've received a lot of satisfaction about helping people. If, like take eviction court, I've represented people in eviction court, defeated illegal evictions so that people could stay in their apartment. You know, and that's a very satisfying thing to do. My work on behalf of tenants led me to approach it more systemically, and I was fortunate to be the, a co-author of the Chicago Residential Landlord Tenant Ordinance, which addresses for all tenants in Chicago, and, and a majority of the residents of Chicago are tenants. Mm -hmm addresses the legal problems that they face in a more systemic way. That was a tremendously satisfying experience to have. So I think there's a lot of satisfaction out of helping people who have, who are facing injustice or have a, a legal need. You all, the three of you um, all touched on this, that money makes all of this possible. And with limited resources, where do you think it could best be allocated? Would it be recent law school grads to pay down debt to make public interest law feasible? Uh, could it be courts so that they can hear more cases? Could it be existing public programs to, to, to expand what's working? Could it be reducing a tax burden on private firms that do sufficient public work? You know, what, uh, where could money, do you three think, could be best allocated in such a way where it can make the best impact? I mean, I think just funding lawyers, 
like just funding the people who want to do this work and funding the organizations who are making this work possible. I mean, I think that in a lot of jurisdictions it is an issue with the courts um, and with crowded court calls and things that are not running efficiently. But again, that could also be resolved by having adequate representation, having lawyers who are able to get individuals into court and have the matters resolved rather than having so many pro se litigants in front of judges who are not understanding what's happening, judges who are not taking the time to explain it, or they are taking the time and that's prolonging things. I mean, to me, I really think just direct funding um, to the people who want to represent low-income individuals or middle-income individuals even. Um, I don't know where that money should come from. I personally am a fan of raising taxes in various <laughs> ways to fund this. I think it would really have a huge payoff in the long run. I think it would um, at least dramatically decrease a lot of the issues that plague our society, whether that be certain types of crime, issues with schools, um, you know, I, I think that, I think we can make it happen, but that's also very optimistic. Yeah, raising taxes is a hard sell in general, yeah. but <laughs> raising taxes to give to lawyers, attorneys yeah. money, good luck with that. Yeah, no, it's uh, my dream, a dream deferred. Mm. <laughs> I think that money, though, goes so far when you put it in the pockets of the agencies or I guess directly to the lawyers who are working there I think that what you're talking about Sarah is a really good way to distribute it because I think about how much firms spend especially big firms spend on things like meetings for their shareholders and and what goes into that meeting what food are you ordering at that meeting and it's like how you could cut costs and provide that to a legal service mm -hmm. agency that's a paralegal salary for a full year. Absolutely. And how much yeah. more the lawyers could do if they had a paralegal who was yeah. helping, you know, where are you gonna get the most bang for your buck? I think uh, if we focus on the justice gap, which is that low-income people who have a civil legal problem, are they able to get the help they need when they need it? The help primarily comes from people who are skilled and, uh, and know the law and are skilled at it, primarily lawyers, but. I'm going to modify something I said earlier, and Emma just mentioned paralegals who are not lawyers. If paralegals are properly supervised, they can do tremendous work at, in administrative agencies, you know, public aid, social security, unemployment insurance. You don't have to be a lawyer to assist someone before an administrative agency. So, and I remember when I first became a legal aid lawyer, it was in Evanston, Illinois, we had Northwestern undergraduates who volunteered to work in our office and we trained them how to do a client interview. So if, if, if non-lawyers are properly trained and supervised, they can provide really valuable assistance to lawyers to, you know, who, who can sort of be in charge of moving the case forward. So, so I, I would urge resources, uh, if, if they become more become available, to address Reducing that justice gap, making sure legal, uh, competent legal advice is available and representation is available for those 86% who can't get the help they need. Knowing what you know now, what would you do differently in pursuit of your public interest career? I, uh, I would probably be saving money from the get-go in terms of uh, like when I started law school. I feel like so I haven't gotten paid for the work that I've done, um, which is like a whole separate issue. And it's like, I know it's not, it's the county and there's, it's like way more complex than just like, oh, let's pay her. Um, but you know. <laughs> no, but really, let's pay yeah, her. Yeah, <laughs> but also pay me. Um, uh, but you know, I think saving up money because I haven't been working um, or I have been working, but for no pay, things like paying for the bar that's coming up and that's like a thousand dollars at least um, living expenses while you're studying for the bar a lot of public service organizations won't hire until after you've taken the bar or passed the bar um, government agencies pretty much will not hire you until you pass the bar um, so I think honestly like just saving money because it is it is a big issue and I know that I'm not alone and 
law students who are pursuing a public interest career who are not getting paid while they're in law school. Um, so I think maybe like just being better with money management, but also maybe that's something that Loyola could do is letting students know ahead of time, okay, there's going to be a $1,000 expense um, the spring of your third year, so let's figure out a plan to start saving up, especially if you're going into public interest. You might not be getting paid at any of your internships. You might not have time to work a job at a restaurant to make up that deficit. I'm too recently graduated to have regrets, but I will say that looking back on my time in undergrad and my year in between undergrad and law school, I think that I could have better prepared myself for the legal service industry by looking a little bit more into how the general field of legal services works. I've been very focused on family and child law pretty much since my freshman year of undergrad. And so I haven't really looked too much at the intersections. And I think that I would have been more prepared to go into the legal services field if I had been a bit more well-rounded. Um, I think that that's very important for people in the legal services industry to make themselves a marketable candidate is understanding more than just your focus of law. I was very lucky to get the position that I have and I love my agency. But again, I was very lucky and had I not already worked there in the family law department for six months on a contract after graduation, I probably would not have gotten the job that I'm in right now when a staff attorney position opened up because I was so siloed in that realm. Um, And I do wish that in law school I had, and before law school even, had really kind of exposed myself to a bit more than just my focus area. I guess I went to law school to help change the world and... (laughs) And you did it. Well, the world has changed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not, you know, I have to say, not necessarily for the better. I mean, as I mentioned, I grew up politically in the 60s. All these great civil rights laws uh, <laughs> that Emma studied with me were passed, <laughs> and uh, the war was ended, and other things. But th- there was a counter reaction to that in the country and politically that really has been dominant. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I remember Ronald Reagan, when he was elected president, said, we fought a war on poverty, and poverty won. And, ba- and what he was saying, it was, it was a, the war on poverty, these governmental efforts to try to help poor people were a waste of time, and that they didn't really help deal with the problem. Um, so, but in my own personal career, I've been very satisfied with it. I feel like I, you know, it's been intellectually interesting and um, politically, I felt like I've been doing things that I can live with. I can get up in the morning and look at myself in, in the mirror. Um, now, I spend most of my time in the classroom, but I try to inspire our students if they want to pursue a full-time career, try to help them think about how they can do that. And if they don't plan to pursue a full-time career, which is fine, try to at least uh, impart to them that they need to give something back through pro bono efforts and whatever work they do as a lawyer. Um, and I still do pro bono work. You know, I, I, I'm a lawyer and I have an obligation to do that and I get a lot of satisfaction from doing that. So I don't have a lot of regrets, um, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. Can I, I'm really sorry, can I add something? Um, I think a lot of times with public interest careers, you are encountering really heavy issues. Um, People whose liberty is at stake, whose property interests are at stake, um, whose fundamental rights are being compromised, and the Secondary trauma can be real, um, and that was something I did not expect to encounter. Um, You know, I started working in child welfare, and I was like, I can handle this, and, like, no one's really talking about, like, how upsetting it is to look at uh, a child's autopsy photos. And it was like, oh, actually, I think I should go to therapy for this specific issue. Professor Rose, you've had a very long and illustrious career. Um, How have you maintained your mental health throughout all of this and Emma as a new public interest lawyer you and Sarah as a 3L I was a therapist before I came to law school so I'm always very concerned about people's (laughs) mental health so um, I'd love to know a career as long as yours how have you done it well it's interesting you ask that because uh, 
when I became a lawyer, I imbibed in various substances <laughs> prior to becoming a lawyer. But I made a decision. I mean, I really, the gravity of representing someone's legal interest weighed on me. I mean, I really, you know, these people, where they lived was at stake in, in an eviction case. And I made a decision, you know, I didn't need to be overstimulated. I needed to be ready mm -hmm. and fresh and get up every morning. So I'm actually, I don't imbibe anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't drink anything. I don't do anything, substance-wise. Uh, I try to get a lot of exercise. And I try to read a lot and um, be a good spouse and father. Um, but uh, I'm also, I'm, you may have detected, I'm politically motivated. I, mean, I see the world politically, and I, I, I just feel like that drives me too. So I don't know if that's the answer. It's absolutely not. an answer. <laughs> Beautiful answer. I'm very lucky to work with amazing people who are also very motivated by the difficult work that we do. 50% uh, of my time is spent with youth in care of the state, so foster youth on their education matters, and 50% is spent primarily with domestic violence. So nothing I do is light or fun, um, but my coworkers are amazing. They make case acceptance meetings fun. They make co-counseling fun. Um, and I think that if I didn't have them, it would make this work a lot harder, if not impossible. I also read a lot. Um, it's sort of my solitary activity. It's nice to be able to take yourself away from it without exactly escaping, you're still using your brain. I've never been good at just binge watching or anything, but I think that you know, self-care, as Sarah said, self-care is very important in the legal services industry because you don't have kind of those perks that firms have. You don't have those lunches, you don't have those happy hours. You know, It's really all on you to self-care, but I will also say my agency is very supportive of this method and we have employee appreciation weeks and we have you know, tiny things like that, that at least if nothing else, remind us that we are important too, and our sanity is important to help our clients. And that's something that I really appreciate in the agency that I work in. Yeah, and to um, Professor Rose's point about imbibing, I actually read an article before I came here about how, um, you know, I think we all know that substance abuse and alcohol abuse, those are really high in the legal field, but in public interest, it's actually much lower than law on average. So I think that that's a good thing and that's something to be thankful for. I don't know if it's because people are choosing not to because it is already so heavy um, and there's a lot at stake and you kind of want to be like on it all the time or if it's just, you know, maybe it's there aren't happy hours and maybe that's part of it. Um, <laughs> But, Send us beer. Yeah, that's, but I mean, that's like, you know, that's one thing that yeah. I did too. It was kind of just like stop engaging in anything that really would detract from my mental health. Like, I don't, you know, if I don't want to go and do something that everyone else is doing, I'm not going to do it because it's like, you're already just so tired. You're just like, I want to go to bed. I want to read. I want to go walk on the lake. I want to spend time with my loved ones. Those are things that I feel like have helped a lot. But also that same article said that public interest lawyers were the happiest among all lawyers. Well, and that's that, good to know. Um, junior partners and associates were the unhappiest profession in all careers in the United States. Wow. So, Yeah, I want to reinforce what Emma said about the camaraderie of public interest practices yeah. and the fun and of it and just all these people who share the same sort of aspirations, working together and pulling together. I have to say most of my best friends today are pe people I've worked with, not just lawyers, but paralegals and secretaries and other people. Uh, there was a real bond, a really wonderful bond that's formed in those types of practices. Well, before Matt does our outro here, I just want to say, Emma, um, I really admire you. You're doing exactly what I want to do. You stuck to your guns. You graduated, and you're working in public interest, and I admire that. And Sarah, I know that I'm going to follow right behind you the year <laughs> after you graduate, and I'm going to call you and be like, what are you doing? Help me. I want to be just like you. And Professor Rose, I was not fortunate enough to be a part of 
your rose garden, as they say, <laughs> one L a year. Um, but as someone who I still don't know what, <laughs> quite what that means, but I'll take it as a compliment. It is a huge compliment. As someone who speaks to a lot of other students in the school, I know for a fact that you're inspiring students. I, I know this because I have a very close friend who had a class with you, and he almost dropped out of law school. You don't know this, but you are the reason he did not drop out of law school. Wow. He, he said that Professor Rose made me realize that I actually can do what I came to law school to do. So you have been incredibly inspiring to a lot of students here. And I hope you, that you That makes that. my day. And, uh, so please pass that along. I will. I mean, it, it means a lot that we have you as an example at our university. And I appreciate you coming to talk Thank to you. us. And I appreciate you. you being the person that you are. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today, and thank you so much to our wonderful guests for stopping by. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jen Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.